0: Okay, let's go ahead and grab a seat and turn to John chapter 14. You can follow along with the notes if you want, or open your Bible, or both. Father we thank you in the name of Jesus for the word of God father we thank you for living understanding we ask you holy spirit impart living understanding of the this most important teaching that your beloved son gave in john chapter 14 we thank you holy spirit for your presence here we ask you to teach us holy spirit we ask you to teach us teach me while i'm talking and teach them while they're listening, even ideas completely different from anything I've said. Just give them Holy Spirit-inspired thoughts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're looking at Session 5 of Intimacy with the Trinity in John chapter 14. Our next semester it's going to be Intimacy with the Trinity, John 15. The semester after that, Intimacy with the Trinity, John 16. And then on to 17. looking at it, most of you know, you've been with this in this course, just verse by verse, line by line, not getting in a hurry. Roman number one, I'd like to always take a minute to review a little bit of the last session so that you get the flow of the thought because we're doing it verse by verse. Paragraph eight. Jesus began with the very familiar commandment Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Now, I'm going to add the word now, I want you to believe in me this way as well. Then he goes on in verse 27. It says, I'll give you supernatural peace. We looked at the verse last session, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Paul says, peace will guard the heart and the mind. I mean, what a glorious privilege that we have access to peace that guards the mind from just rampant negative thinkings and peace that guards the heart from that storm of emotions of anxiety. It's so typical and so easy for humans to get in to that frenzied mind and that stormy heart. As human beings, that's our propensity. Jesus said, I have peace that guards both of them. But he says, but you have to Believe in me. And you have to not let trouble dominate your heart. We've looked at this two or three times, so I just wanna say one sentence. He's appealing to the human dynamics involved of resisting that onslaught of negative thoughts that leads to negative emotions. He says resist it by believing in me. Now in verse one, as we said in the last session, When he says, believe also in me, this is not a gospel appeal that they would become born again. Sometimes you'll read this, you'll say, just believe in Jesus, give your heart to him and be born again. He's making a very specific command here when he says, believe in me. Because many in Israel, including the scribes and Pharisees, they believed in the God of Moses. And Jesus said, you've never seen him with your eyes, yet you believe him. That's why they obeyed the sacrificial system, all the rituals. They believed it mattered to the invisible God of Israel. They had faith in an invisible God. Jesus said, if you read it carefully, you do believe in the God of Israel. But you only believe in me because you've seen me in the flesh. I'm going to be invisible after tomorrow. You don't really get that, but I'm going to die And you need to now believe my promises like you believe in my Father's promises in the Old Testament. It's gonna be different for you. You've only understood and believed me when you saw me and touched me. It's all going to be different after tonight. Paragraph B. Then he gave them four, I call, core truths. And these are not random truths. These are strategic, significant, four truths that they were to believe Jesus' teaching. He says, when I'm gone, you need to believe these four things I'm telling you right now. And it won't be natural for you to believe them. Your natural mindset would be to neglect these and not work your spiritual muscle to, to align your mind to these four truths. And then he goes on through the rest of John 14, 15, 16 and gives more truths, but he starts with these four core truths. And they would have said, sure, we believe it. He says, yeah, but when I'm absent and I'm invisible, will you lean on these four truths to resist trouble dominating your mind and your emotions? Truth number one, in my father's house are many mansions. That speaks of the new Jerusalem. Truth number two, I'm going to secure a place for you in my father's presence. Now we we know that we've Heard that for many years, many of you in this room, but this was a radical idea that a Jewish man could secure a place in the house of the God of Israel. They're going, okay, secure a place, prepare a place, secure a place. He goes, I'm coming again to you. And here's the point, that where I am, here's the thing, I want you there. I want to be with you. I want you together with me. And they thought, well, we know that. He goes, well, you're not going to believe that so instantly when I'm invisible. Because they don't get it yet. So truth number one, your heart will be troubled, but if you anchor it in the reality that you, are, you have access to the Father's house forever, you're invited, you have a secure place, and the Father's house is the new Jerusalem, that's where it's going Your story won't make sense, and you won't be able to interpret your trouble in a right way if you don't know you you have billions of years in my father's house in indescribable joy and pleasure. If you lose that point, that anchor point, you're not going to navigate your troubled heart and your troubled mind in a right way. And, of course, that's a point that is referenced a little bit in the body of Christ over the generations But the body of Christ in the earth today is not anchored in that truth. And that's one reason, I'm not saying this negatively, I'm just trying to be helpful. That's one reason our hearts are so easily troubled because we see our lives through the lens of several decades and what's happening over a few years or a few decades and we interpret everything through that lens. And Jesus is saying, if you don't see the big picture of your destiny, where you're going to spend 99999999999999 percent of your life forever in that house. If you don't see that, you're not going to interpret pressure in the right way. It's going to sink you. Truth number two, I'm going to secure a place for you by going to the cross. They don't understand that yet. Though he has said that to them on three specific occasions on his way to Jerusalem, they still could not get it one of the reasons they could not get it, because they had a bias, a, a presupposition that the Messiah could not be killed, quote, by his enemies. It couldn't happen. So they don't have a grid for what he's telling them. Though he's told them over and over, their biased, they're, quote, biblical biased. Their presupposition blocked their ability to grasp that. That he was going to go to the cross, To prepare a place for them. They said, no, the Messiah, no. When the Messiah comes, he defeats Rome, takes over the world, gives us thrones of glory. We start ruling right away. That's our presupposition. Number three, he said, I'm coming for you. And for a while, they would be very troubled that he's not coming for them, very afraid. And then when he appeared to them, then then it was different. But then they had decades to go, and he might appear to them once or twice more. We don't know. Very rare that he would appear in his resurrected body after those those first uh, 40 or 50 days. It would be very rare that he would do it. But you must believe I am coming to you. I'm going to come to you at the end of the age but I'm also gonna come to you by the Spirit and touch your heart, and I'm gonna speak to you. You gotta believe that when I'm invisible. Again, I'm picturing them, they're going, yeah, we got it. He's thinking, you don't have anything I'm telling you yet. And then number four, he gives the reason why he's going to the cross, because where I am, there you will be. I desire you to be with me more than you desire to be with me is the underlying truth. Because what the enemy tells us is that God's forgotten us. He doesn't desire to be with us. And Jesus said, you're going to need to anchor your life in this truth. I actually desire it more than you do. So these four core truths are, again, I don't want to give the whole message I gave in session two and three, but they're just huge that we, we cannot move on in spiritual depth by neglecting these four truths. or just kind of casually interacting with the Lord according to them. Roman number two. Now we're going to uh, the new material because we've covered verse one to three over the first sessions. Thomas has a question. Matter of fact, in John 14, there's three questions that are being asked. Thomas, Philip, and and Judas, uh, another Judas, not not the uh, betrayer. There's three questions being asked, but we'll look at that later. So Thomas, uh, Jesus starts off, verse four, and he gives him a tip off. That they have prejudices in their thinking. I'm talking about biblical biases or biases about the Bible that are in their own agendas and imagination, not that they got from the scripture directly. They have biases, they have a slanted point of view already. And Jesus is actually pointing this out to them, but they don't get it. But the reason I'm saying it, because we have a number of biases. About the Bible and the grace of God and God's judgments and God's leadership and revival, we got strong biases. Some of us have biases stronger than others. And Jesus is telling us through this very passage make sure you're drawing it from what I said, not the popular conversations, even in the Christian community. Make sure it's what I said. That's actually what he's telling them. He says, Where I go, you know. And the way you know. He says, I made it really clear. You don't think you know because your own presuppositions are blocking your understanding. I've told you clearly, and I'm tipping you off right now. Go back to my words, not the words of others, because you actually do know and then Phil, I mean, Thomas goes, Lord, we don't know. <laughs> and of course, Jesus understood that we don't know where you're going. So if we don't know the destination to where you're going, because they're imagining he's leaving maybe for a few weeks or a few months, they're, they're not sure, and, and we can't, how can we go meet up with you in that city out in the wilderness or wherever you're, wherever you're going, we don't even know that we don't have a map, we don't have directions. Because they're imagining he's going somewhere in Israel or somewhere in the area, and they're going to have to follow later, but they don't have any specific directions. And Jesus is saying, without saying it, Thomas, apostles, disciples, think. Lay your biases aside. I've said it really clearly where I'm going. Think. That's why this statement of verse 4 is so important. It's actually an alert statement that it's the propensity of the human heart to read the Scripture according to our biases and our agendas. I don't mean I mean wickedly. It's just a human nature that it takes an intentionality to see what he says and to base our life on what he says. Much of the gospel around America, I call it the gospel of the American dream, Uh, Much of what's been promoted for decades is not actually found in clarity in the scripture. It's born out of the American soul that wants the American dream, which is not bad that we want that, but when we read the lens, the Bible through the lens of that, we end up distorting verses and ignoring verses. That's the alert that he's giving them here, and boy, I mean, it's very, very relevant for us today. Earlier, he had told them he's going to the Father. Three times just on the way to Jerusalem from Galilee, I'm going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. I'm going to suffer rejection and death. I've told you. That, no, no. No, Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes on clouds and he rules all nations. We're good. We're good. He's going to involve all the saints with it. Hey, we're good. I told you where I'm going. Nah, it can't be that, uh, because we know everything's going to be amazing Victory's right around the corner in terms of the outward circumstances. Well, he would tell them many times throughout John 13 to 17, I'm going to the Father, the the invisible Father, the Father in heaven, that's where I'm going. And they're going, okay, you're coming right back, right? I mean, okay, okay, how long are you going to be there? Now, Thomas is speaking for the others. In verse 5, he goes, we don't know where you're going. I can imagine a couple of the other guys giving him kind of a high five. Hey, thanks for asking. We kind of, you know, we got this idea. He said we know where he's going in the way. So we kind of have this idea we should know where he's going in the way. So thank you, Thomas. So he speaks up. We, because he didn't want to say I, he brings them with him. Because probably from their conversations just before that, We don't know where you're going to be straightforward, Jesus. We know you're going to the Father's house. But Jesus, you told us recently, or in John chapter 2, the temple is my Father's house. And then, this is Thursday before he dies on Friday, on the Tuesday, two days earlier, he said in Matthew 24, the temple's going to be destroyed. So maybe you're going to build a new one somewhere else. Maybe you're going to go where the tabernacle of Moses used to be in Shiloh. Maybe one of the locations where Moses' tabernacle. We we don't know. Just tell us where, and we can find the way if you give us a few hints. Because they're still not accepting the fact he's going to die and be absent from them physically permanently. I mean, minus the times when he appeared right for the resurrection. But as a rule, he would be permanently gone from them physically. And earlier in John 8, he said, hey, I'm going where you cannot come. And they're thinking, okay, you're gone a few weeks or a few months. Boy, that's going to be rough, but hey, we'll, we'll be fine. We can't come, but we can come a little bit later, or you're going to come right back and then bring us there. So paragraph C, Thomas is asking for clarification on the destination because I'm guessing, this is my interpretation, and I could be wrong on this, the temple's going to be destroyed. He said that on Tuesday, Matthew 24. Not one stone will be on the other. Okay, the temple is the Father's house. We're going to the Father's house. Okay, where where are you going to? Is there a secret somewhere that we don't know about where the Father's house already is? Are you gonna build it? You're preparing the lumber and the construction for your Father's house? Is that what you're doing? Like Solomon got all the construction material back in the Old Testament? Thomas is saying, we don't know really what happens to us when you're gone. I mean, if you're gone a few weeks or a few months or longer, what happens to us? I mean, we love you and we're afraid to live life without you. We're so connected to you, we can't even imagine it. And if we don't know what city you're going to go to, to the Father's house or wherever it is, how on earth are we going to know the way? Paragraph D. He clarifies. I'm going to the Father's presence. He makes it really clear. Right through John 14, 15, 16, 17. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Okay, so you're going to the Father. Yeah, you've been saying that going to the Father thing. But Jesus, there's a problem. The Father's in heaven. You're going short term. How long? No. Permanently, at least through the church, you know, for the 2,000 years before his return. Now he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the sixth time that where Jesus gives, gives one of the I am statements. There's seven total that he gives. I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We all know this passage so well, but this passage is absolutely filled with implications and truths. Well, one thing I don't want you to miss in paragraph E is that I'm going to the Father, and I'm the way to the Father. I'm the truth about the Father, He's telling them, by you interacting with the Father, that's that's one of the ways you can overcome a troubled heart by interacting with the Father. He's saying that by implication there. So paragraph F, we want to, I mean, not just a one-liner statement, but we want to use that simple little prayer that that I, I, I applied to many, many truths. Thank you, show me more. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the way. Show me more. You start like that, you might not even know much more than that. Thank you that you are the truth. Show me more. Thank you that you are the life. I don't know what that means, but show me more. So you want to take that thank you, show me more, and apply it to every one of these promises in John 13 to 17. Well, let's start with the first one. Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus' death Made a way for us to go to the Father right now. By the indwelling Spirit, we have access to the Father right now. And then for billions and billions and billions of years, we live in the Father's house physically with the resurrected body. But even now, there's a way to the Father. Jesus' death made a way by paying the debt of our sin on the cross. By his death, he removed all the obstacles that are in the way of the Father allowing us in his presence, full access to his presence by the Spirit now that we have free access to his presence by the Holy Spirit now and then physically we live in his presence forever. Paragraph B, Jesus went to the cross to prepare or to secure our place in the Father's house. Now we all know that, except for when we stumble, the enemy finds it so easy to get a stronghold of condemnation, accusation, shame in the lives of believers. So we technically know Jesus secured a, way, a place for us. We technically know it, but then when condemnation hits us, when shame hits us, with accusation, we're worthless hypocrites, we forget it, it's over, The Lord says, don't let that trouble run rampant in your mind. Don't do that. I made a place for you. It's secure, it's prepared, it's final, it's free. Nobody can take you away from that place. That's what he's saying. Now many people think that, many religious people in the earth think that Jesus died as a martyr. They honor him as a martyr. He didn't die as a martyr. That's not what he died as. He died as an innocent sacrifice for our sin. He went to the cross himself. The Father sent him and he went. He goes, I'm not going to the cross because the devil won or because I can't overthrow you. I could call legions of angels and destroy you and the Romans, he could tell the Pharisees. I'm not, I am going to the cross. I'm laying my life down myself, not as a martyr, but as a sacrifice in the courts of God to pay the debt of your sin. The innocent one takes, becomes guilty, so that the guilty ones become innocent. The exchange in God's court. And some folks don't understand that. Romans 5, I mean 3 and 2 Corinthians, and many verses make that very clear. That in the court of God, God cannot overlook sin. Sin, a holy God can't overlook sin. Just say, well, you know, it is what it is. A holy God is also a just God. So he has to pay for the sin to remove it. Because in his courts, there has to be justice. And because he's loving, he found a way to pay for the sin so his justice is satisfied so that his holiness is not in any way infringed upon by unholiness. Unholiness can't dwell in the presence of a holy God. So he came up with a way to pay for the price of the sin. And we don't understand the scales of justice in God's court, how one man can die for billions, but it's clear in the scripture the revelation of the Holy Spirit to the apostles that's what's happened. And many people debate that, many people don't like that, but that is the way of salvation and what the scripture declares. He paid our debt because we couldn't pay our debt before God. And he says, I'm gonna go per- secure or prepare this place for you. I'm gonna come back for you, though. I'm gonna to come to you by the Holy Spirit, but eventually, at the time of your death, I'm gonna come for you as well. I'm not leaving you on your own to where you die and your human spirit kind of floats in the sky, searching for now, how do I get from here to there? He goes. When you die, I will actually see to it personally that you are escorted into my Father's presence. I'll come to you even while you're alive by the Holy Spirit in my appearances after the resurrection, but I'm going to come to you and bring you to the Father's house. You know, so the millions and millions of believers that have died over 2,000 years, paragraph C, Jesus personally sees to it that they're escorted to the Father's presence. He, sometimes people have had death encounters and they've come back and they tell the story that Jesus stood at their deathbed and he brought them most death encounters that I've read. I've read quite a few over the years of believers. An angel escorted them, but the angels coming as an ambassador of Jesus, they're coming in his name to escort that believer. Then the believer's like, where are we going? Through that tunnel and through this, there. and Okay, where now? And the angels just keep coming. We're not left on our own. Paragraph D. I mean, that's a strange thought because some people think, well, of course we'll end up there. I don't know how, but some believers and many unbelievers, they're very afraid when I die. How do, if my spirit really is alive, how do I know where to go when I die? You know, I've said this a few times over the years, and, but I, I love bringing attention to this, that I've read quite a few stories. I've, oh, I've just loved death encounters, the stories of what happens. And I've read lots of them. I mean, for 40 years, whenever I would go somewhere 70s, 1970s, 80s, 90s to another city, I'd always go to their bookstore if I could. And I would ask any stories about visions of heaven. And I don't believe all everyone that has a vision, they put it in a book, but the incredible repetitive, uh, 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 there's points that are repeated over and over and over by people from different generations, different parts of the earth. And, and one of my favorite points, and I'll just give one example, the lady dies in a car wreck, and her spirit instantly leaves her body, and she's so alive She doesn't know she's dead. I mean, for real, this is a real common. And she looks over and she goes, oh man, that lady lying on the ground bleeding looks just like me. I wonder what happened. And it takes them a few moments to go, wait, that is me. I mean, this is an interesting point. It's an important point. Death is really easy and it's really fast. I don't mean while they're alive suffering. That's not the point. But the death process is instantaneous. And to a believer, it's instantly glorious. Like, wow, that that was easy. Like, I thought it would be worse than this. And they see relatives, and they see angels, and they see the Lord. And they're like, wow, wow, it's pretty amazing. But it takes a few moments to acclimate. But then they might ask, the question has been asked, where does this... Living spirit go, like, okay, I'm standing here at the car wreck. You know, the police are all coming. They're looking down at my body. Hey, everybody, I'm here. Nobody can hear. Then maybe if sometimes the angel's instantly there, sometimes even a family member who's passed before them is there, that they see, you know, they're beckoning, waving like that. I've heard many stories of that where a believer who died before them, is their arms are smiling and they're beckoning to come. Sometimes it's the Lord himself is there. But sometimes it's a few moments and they're just they're looking around. They don't know where to go or what to do and the Lord's saying, "I am coming for you to take you to my presence. Don't worry. You're not going to get lost in the shuffle. It's all taken care of. I've thought of every detail." Well, paragraph D, we can trust him. He'll take us to the Father. I have a little analogy here. If you went to some large, foreign city far away, and you got out, you know, and you're at the airport, and you're standing there, and someone comes by, and you say, hey, how do you get over there, you know, an hour away, the other side of this city? I don't know anything about it. The guy goes, well, go here, they'll go there, then a couple of miles turn here, and there's like 38 directions. Then here, or get in my car, and I'll just take you there. Let's do it that way. I'll just get in your car, and you take me there. Jesus is saying, Don't worry. I've got this covered. I am absolutely going to take care of getting you there, securing the place, and then the transition time, I will be there and take care of every detail. Don't be afraid at all. You are going to be surprised how much you're going to enjoy even the transition. There's absolutely zero reason for a believer to be afraid of death. I mean, our natural minds we might be, but not because of the Word of God. Word of God, death is easy, it's fast, and it's glorious for the believer. They're in a whole new world of glory that's indescribable. I've loved the stories that I've heard over the years. Now when Jesus says, I am the way, he's not only saying, through my death, I made a way. He is saying that. I made a way for you. He's saying more than that. Because he's going, I am the way. Because of me, it's not just I died and makes and you're going to get there. I am the way, I didn't just make a way. I am the way. For billions of years, you're going to be there, secure because of me. I'm the way, and I am committed to you and I love you. I'm taking care of every detail because that's who I am. I am the way. And you will be secure forever in my presence. What a glorious reality. He says it, let's go look at Romans 4. He goes, I'm the truth. Well, Jesus revealed the truth about God's personality. Jesus revealed the truth about how God relates to his people in this age. And in much of John chapter 14, the rest of this passage from verse 7 to 24, he's giving details of how God will relate to people. And these are details that Jesus said, I want you to believe these truths. God will relate to you this way, and we'll look at those week by week. And those are other core truths that are part of those four core truths we started with in verse 2 and 3. These are details of those four core truths or more uh, insight into each one of them. Paragraph B He knows the truth about God, He knows the truth about human beings. He knows the truth about angels. He knows the truth about demons. He knows the truth about the past. He knows the truth about the future. He knows the truth of the past and future of every person, every city, every nation. He knows the full truth. He knows the negative truth, the positive truth. He knows how God sees you through his blood at his cross. He knows what you look like to God through the lens of the grace of God, he knows that truth about you. He goes, I know the truth, I am the truth. You interact with me, truth will enter your heart. I have in paragraph C, in the presence of Jesus, truth is manifest, because he is the truth. And what I mean by that, that's maybe a a strange sentence to say. When we stand before Jesus on that day, anyone, demon, angel, believer, unbeliever, Anyone that stands in his presence, because he's not, doesn't just know the truth, he is the truth. Anyone that stands in his presence, the truth of them will come out. There's a plenty of verses where he says, don't think that when you stand before me, you're going to present some spin about your life. That I don't grasp well, who you are will manifest openly to you maybe for the first time in clarity. It will be openly manifest because in my presence I am truth. And deception cannot exist in my presence. I remember when I had a, uh, I don't want to get off on this because I get off on it really easy, but a long time ago in October 1978, I had an encounter, a very dramatic encounter. It changed my life. I was only 23 years old where I stood in the very presence of Jesus. And he looked at my life, he looked at me. And the truth of everything about me came out. And the good news is the truth about who you are in Christ comes out, not just negative truth. But I remember the Holy Spirit, I don't wanna give the the experience and the details, but it's something I I think on every day would be exaggerated. But probably every week or two, for, for 40 years, I've thought about this encounter. It was that dramatic. And maybe not that often, but nearly that often. And I stood before him, and the Holy Spirit made clear. He says, nobody can manipulate the man Christ Jesus. No fact can be twisted. No argument can be made that isn't based 100% on truth. Because you're in the presence of truth. But by the grace of God, the truth of who he is for us comes out too. And he said, if you will repent, I will forget that sin. I'll take it out of my book. If you genuinely repent, if you come up with some makeshift argument that's in the Christian culture and conversation that this is okay, this is okay, and this isn't true, and this isn't true, you buy that and you stand before me, it will bear witness the fact that you were in deception. Deception. I, I, I've, I've, you know, ministered to people of, you know, over these years and some folks, especially with social media, they cluster together. Now you get 50 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 believing the same idea. And if you get a bunch of people believe it, you think it's okay. Strange, loose ideas about immorality, loose ideas about drunkenness, loose ideas about covetousness, about divisiveness, about slander, loose ideas, about many, many issues of life that we don't, when we see them, we don't repent of them, but we go, hey, you know, you know, it's how it is. And we got a lot of people say, that's the glorious grace of God. The Lord says, none of those arguments will hold up when you stand in front of him. None of them. Only what he says in his word. And if you repent, he really does strike it from his book. And then he said that as a believer even, that we are comfortable not repenting of. You know, we've heard the arguments. No, I can do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Everyone else is doing it. If we're comfortable not repenting of it, then it's in the conversation when we stand before him. I'm not saying that the believer isn't in hell. I mean, is in heaven. But Paul talked about believers that will suffer great loss, though they will be saved as though by fire, but they lost all the potential reward they could have had. And so if I can slander somebody over in the corner and think, well, the guy deserves it. The Lord says, okay, you want that in the conversation? Okay. I go, no, Lord, you know, I shouldn't have said that. He goes, come on, say a little bit more. Nah, nah, that was a wrong spirit. I need to stop that. Good. It's out of the book now. So that won't be in the conversation at all. He is the, yeah, hallelujah, but he is the truth. My point, my, my point is that this the greatness that's out of the book. My point that is, if we keep it, it's in the conversation. It's not about our salvation or not, it, at, at, at the point I'm talking about right now. I mean, people can go too far and deny their faith. That's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about, I don't want to be a believer when I stand before the Lord, 1 Corinthians 3.15, I'm saved as though by fire, but I've suffered loss. I don't wanna be that person. Jesus says, well then take my word at face value. Don't believe the arguments in the Christian culture because many of them will press us to a life of compromise, to be comfortable with compromise. Many will say, well look, they're doing it. Hey, it is what it is. The Lord says, well if my word says different, I am the truth. And I am the truth about what love is. You know, there's a lot of arguments about love in the culture. There's only one man qualified to define love. The one who gave his life for love, and he didn't have to. He's the truth about love. He's the truth about grace. He's the truth about mercy. And there's more arguments in the body of Christ. uh, You know, again, the social media stuff where people are challenging his way of salvation, challenging his death on the cross. That's not necessary. A God of love wouldn't need that. And they've created a God in their own image, in their own imagination. And Jesus says, I want to assure you, I am the truth about all of these things. So I look at those and I go, Lord, I take this seriously. Top of page three. Jesus is the life. Now in the Greek, there's, Two words for life, actually, more than that, but two main words for life: suke life, which is animal life, the the life that an animal has, that a human has. By when you're born, you have life, you breathe, you have physical animal life, and then there's zoe, which is supernatural life, it's the god quality of life, the life that comes from God, it's more than. Breathing and consciousness and physical life, it's supernatural life, and that's the life you get when you're born again. The spirit comes in you, it's zoe. And Jesus is saying, I am the zoe. I am more than just physical animal life. There's a God quality of life that only God has that I am the source of, it. I will put it in you, I will impart it to your heart. Paragraph B, John chapter 1, verse four, it's declared, uh, John declared, he goes, in him was light. In him was life. Life is in him. This zoe life, this satisfaction in our spirit with supernatural peace only comes from him. In him is life. There's no life like that outside of him. And so believers, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way, just because we're humans. We're always trying to find life, and even as believers, outside of interacting with him. Like there's satisfaction. There's a sense of reward, a sense of accomplishment. There's something I can get that answers the deepest things in me. And I love you, Jesus, but I mean just by what I'm doing and what I'm achieving and who likes me. Jesus says there is no life. There's no Zoe life in any of that. Only from me does it come. And the sooner that we conclude that and begin to intentionally look for Zoe life in him, that's the satisfaction of our heart. He's our great reward. That's where spiritual life and understanding comes from. That's where our our primary identity comes from, from having life from him. He says, and John said, and his life was the light of men. The life, that Zoe life, that deposit of the Holy Spirit is the source of illumination. It's the source of light or understanding in us. Because then we understand truth. We understand the Bible. We understand salvation. We understand ourself through that illuminating life, the Holy Spirit's life in us. It is light. It gives us illumination or understanding. And he says in verse 5, when that light shines in the darkness... The darkness cannot comprehend it. There's some translations say the darkness wins, but other translations when it says the darkness cannot comprehend it means the darkness can't overpower that light. Beloved, there's darkness in our heart and our emotions and our mind. This light is stronger than that darkness. If we give access to that light in our interaction with the Lord, it overpowers darkness. A lot of folks, they try to get rid of darkness by aiming at the darkness to try to expel it. Yes, we got to repent of it, but you can't like open the window out back somewhere and empty the room, you know, buckets full of darkness. The way you get darkness out of the room, you turn the light switch on. And a lot of folks, they attack darkness in their heart, trying to repent more and, 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 and I believe in that, but at the end of the day... It's the light that overpowers darkness. And the light, that illumination, that inspiration comes from that life. It's in Him. There's no reason to look for it outside of Him. It doesn't exist out. In Him is life. Paragraph C. In this life, I, I, I love this sentence here. In Jesus is found the fullness. The fullness of your blessing forever is in that man. The totality of your pain is removed forever because of that man. This man is remarkable beyond what we grasp. Beloved, you may live on the earth 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, and you may have physical pain, financial pain, relational pain, rejection, failures, all these things, pressures, I'm in the 20 categories. I want to promise you one thing. In one minute, it will be over forever. For billions of years because of him. And this man, he loves you. He's done it all. He is the life. John saw it in Revelation 21. Every tear no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. I don't like physical, emotional, financial pain, the shame, the pain of shame. I don't like any of that stuff for one year, 10 years, 20 years. But one thing I know for sure, in a minute, every single negative issue is settled forever in a minute. And as believers, we're anchored in that. And it makes us look at, I don't like to endure anything negative. But I know one thing, it's over in a minute, either way it goes. That man is the fullness of everything that you long for in your heart. Paragraph one, it's never entered the heart of a man. No eyes, see. seen, no ears here. It's never entered, the imagination has never been big enough to grasp how glorious it is. You take Steven Spielberg and Walt Disney, put them together times a thousand, it's never entered the heart of a man, ever. Paul said, it is so far beyond. It's worth it. Yeah, but I feel lonely right now, so I gotta do this, because I'm lonely. I don't like lonely, and I don't like the pain of loneliness. But you don't want to cast off Jesus' leadership. Trust me, he is life. And in a minute, he's the fullness of everything you want. Just keep steady with him. It's not worth it anymore. I can't take it. Number one, it is worth it, and you can take it, actually. I've heard that for years and years and years. I can't take it anymore. I go, well, the options are really bad. Because you can't take it staying in the in the relationship and in the reach, there's only darkness outside of that. Only darkness. I can't take it, I go, actually, you can. I promise you, you can. Get that out of your mind that you can't take it. Don't let trouble dominate your heart. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, there's no temptation, there's no pressure greater than God has given you ability to endure. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he goes, there's nothing will come where he will not give you sufficient strength to stand in obedience in it if you want it. I can't take it anymore. It's too hard. Actually, it's not. You're sad and hurting. I'm with you. You despise what you're going through. I'm with you. I'm totally with you. But you can't take it. That's not true. And it's going to be over in a minute, no matter what the pressure is. That's who we have in him. Paragraph D. Now this is, this is kind of strange language, but I just love it anyway. It's coming out of my journal. Our holy Jesus is our holy daydream. Now that's a weird term. It's not a biblical term. and it's, it's just a weird term. That's all I'm gonna say. What do I mean by that? Thoughts of Jesus in conversation with him that is the place where we escape. You know how the pressures and the rigors of life and the guy goes, oh, I got to go, go here and go there to escape. The place of escape, the great getaway for the human spirit is in that conversation with that man. That's the sweet place. We can escape the hold and the domination of pressures and troubles. A lot of people they want to escape it through human relationships. There's about ones outside of the will of God. They want to escape it through sensual pleasures. There's a very various kind, not just sexual, sensual pleasures to escape. Others want to escape it through entertainment. Others want to escape it through getting so busy they just escape the pressure, or they opioids. They have mind altering, you know, legal and illegal. Many the human spirit wants to escape. The pressure, bearing down, and this strange language I'm using, the sweet place, the great escape, the great getaway, actually is in that interaction with that man. That he could be our first thought. I don't mean every minute our first thought, but he could be under pressure. Our first thought is him, who we are to him, who he is to us, and what we are in our relationship with him. Beloved, that is the glory of the Christian life because Christianity is not just escape from hell. It's not just a mandate and a mission to go do something. Christianity is the interaction with a person forever. Paul talked about this. He didn't use, he used biblical language. (laughs) Holy daydreams, not really biblical language, but it's kind of language in the culture. You know, he's just daydreaming. I'm just thinking about those four core, not just. I don't want to give the idea. I just think about that. That's not true at all. But those four core truths and these other truths and interacting and talking about him, thinking about him, I can escape all kinds of pressures in part, the pressure on my emotion of a troubled heart. I'm not talking about retreating from real life. I'm talking about retreating from the domination of fear and lust and anxiety and shame. I'm talking about retreating from the domination of those things. Paul called it, being Romans 8, he said if you're spiritually minded, you can read the whole passage on your own, chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. It's a very important passage. It's worthy of spending some time on this passage, but I'm not going to. I just The idea is if you set your mind on normal human things that we set our mind on, it's going to be death. It's going to be death. The carnally minded, the, the natural minded is death. It says in verse 6, but if you get into the conversation with the Spirit and you engage with these truths, with the Holy Spirit's help, even in in our weakness, we don't do it very well, it's life and peace in your heart. It's life and peace. Top of page 4. Jesus makes the, we're going to look at the other statement in chapter 14, verse 6. He goes, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Here it is. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus made it very clear throughout his entire ministry, his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He made it very clear. He said it over and over and over. It's one of the most detested and contested truths in the Bible. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Don't let anybody give you some religious logic and argument that's based on the premise that they're more loving than God is And they understand salvation better than God does. And if he was more like them, there would be other ways of salvation. I hear it all the time. I tell young people on the college campuses, don't buy that rhetoric. (laughs) Don't buy it. That logic is based on the presupposition. They're more loving than God, and they know a better way to govern the universe than God does. Just look up and count the stars. By the way, you can only see 10,000 of them. With a naked eye and there's over a billion there's over a billion galaxies the Milky Way galaxy is one of the smaller ones don't imagine you're smarter than him just look up and go oh yeah probably he knows stuff I don't know but it's real popular and it's popular and I don't pick it on campuses but it's cool on the campuses among believers to disregard the authority of the word of God. He said, well, you know, I don't know. You know what I think? I was like, so what? Let's take what God thinks. <laughs> Let's take what he says. Because remember in verse four, he said, you know the way and you know where I'm going. I've told you, but your predispositions and your own agendas have blocked you from seeing it. It's straightforward, what I've told you over and over And I just, that verse has just alerted me. I just don't want to be that guy who gets into those flows of conversation that are not honoring the word of God because I know it won't stand up. Jesus does not have some truth about God. He is the truth. Very offensive that he's the only way of salvation. He said it unashamedly because he knows it to be true. Paragraph C. Many teach lies about there being various ways to God. Again, they imagine they're more loving than God is. They're wiser than God. If they were God, they would run the universe different. But in truth, paragraph C, we don't deserve even one way to God. We don't deserve any way to God. Much less even one. I mean, one's amazing. All we needs one, but we don't even deserve one. The idea that there should be five or 10 or a 100 in his great mercy he made a way for us. Very costly to God to do that. There's a verse in 1 Peter 4, 18 that says that salvation, even for the righteous to be saved, they're saved with difficulty. It's a strange verse. You never hear it preached on because it's like, what? With difficulty, the righteous are saved, 1 Peter four eighteen, And I've heard, I've looked at that verse over the years because it kind of bothered me in the, when I was a young pastor in the 70s and 80s. I go, with difficulty to save, you mean I can't be saved? I thought it was free. And the difficulty was not as difficult for me to believe. The difficulty is how much it costs God to provide the way. With great difficulty, God became, or, or at great cost, God became a human, and when Jesus became a human, he became a human forever. He didn't become a human, then race from the dead, get to the Father and go, whoa, that was weird. Take that human thing back. I want to go back to just being God. No, when he said yes to the Lord to become a man, he is a human forever. I mean, incredibly costly. He's still fully God, but he's also fully man Forever. They to live in perfection. Because if he sinned one time, he would not qualify as the sacrifice to pay the debt of our sin. The innocent one takes the role of the guilty, that the guilty ones take the role of the innocent. Very costly, with difficulty, the righteous are saved. It was costly. That's one a view of that and one translation of that, and that's the one that makes most sense to me. I've heard other views of that in other translations. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 5. The Father made Jesus to be sin. What? He became sin. What? I mean, our brains can't begin to comprehend it. Why? So that we would become the righteousness of God. Did you know what? You possess a righteousness the day you're born again, so great of a quality of righteousness, it cannot be improved upon even by God because it's his own righteousness. A million years from now in the resurrection, the righteousness you receive the day you're born again will not be one degree greater in righteousness than the day you received it. He became sin, and you became the righteousness of God. This is staggering. Staggering. And to have people, I mean, many pastors are doing it. Churches, seminaries, PhDs, doctors of theology. Well, we don't know about this idea of God Sacrificing his son. I mean, let's be honest. Like, don't stop. It's hurting my ears. <laughs> what it cost him. And for humans to wrangle in their pride and arrogance that they know better, they love more, they get it better. Like, no, oh, no, don't even. I've had, you know, we heard people debate. I can't even hear the debates. It hurts my stomach. I go, do you know what it cost him? Do you know who you are to him? Well, all the other ways. Oh, well, what about, what about? I tell you, the man who gave everything for love has an answer for the what about that one guy? What about that tribe in Africa? What about that? He's answered the whatabouts. He's got way better answers than we do. If you question it, go outside. You'll only see 10,000. Just look up and go, okay. It's one billionth of the stars that exist. Yeah, I bet you could beat me in chess, too. He is so smart. He's answered that what about thing. Don't imagine you're going to exhaust the wisdom of God and and figure out the what about that one guy. Let's go to Roman numeral seven. We'll end with this. Jesus as Lord, lunatic, or liar. It's a famous argument by C.S. Lewis. Well, he's not the first to make the argument, but he's the one who popularized it. In the 1960s and 70s, I remember in college in the 70s, we were reading his book on mirror Christianity, and we were all talking about Jesus, Lord, lunatic, or liar. It was really, like, powerful, and C.S. Lewis is one of the brilliant minds of, of the last 100 years in the body of Christ, plus paragraph A. If it's new to you, we just do it real fast, but, and I just got this from, from Wikipedia. I mean, just, I'm just taking the quotes directly. I don't remember all the sources, but you can go find it all. I just took some of this word for word. Some of it's my own, but most of it is word for word just straight off the Internet. Uh, but I, I remember us being fascinated with this argument in, in, our, in the university. C.S. Lewis popularized the argument against those people who claim they reject Jesus as God, but they admire him as a good teacher. They said, oh, you know, he's not God, but oh, he's such a good teacher. And C.S. Lewis goes, that's completely illogical. And at first you think, why is it illogical? He wrote, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that so many people say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great teacher, but not as God. That's really kind of cool. Like, man, his teaching is so good. His humanitarianism, but not as God. C.S. Lewis says, I'm ready to prevent anyone from that foolish argument. So you're kind of, if you haven't heard the argument, you're going, okay, I'm listening. A man who is merely a man that would say the things Jesus said can't be a good moral teacher. You can shut him up as a fool. He said, I'm God. I'm the only way. Like, really? And you're a great teacher? Like, you think you're God? You can spit at him as a demon or you can follow and worship him as Lord, but you cannot... Patronize him with the nonsense that says he's claims to be God, but he's not God, but he's a great teacher. Because that is absolute nonsense. Then he goes on and points out paragraph B. This is the whole strength of his argument. It's quite simple. Lewis pointed out that Jesus claimed to be God. He goes, here it is. Either his claim is true or not true. There you have it. If it's true, then he's God. It's settled. If it's not true, you only got two options. Option one, he knew it wasn't true. And he was just lying, boldly lying to people. He knew it wasn't true. He lied all the way through. Or worse, maybe, he didn't know it was true. He's not God, but he thinks he is. He's a lunatic. He thinks he's God and he's not. Or he knows he's not God, but tells everybody he is. He goes, he's either a liar or a lunatic. Or he is God and he's the Lord. A great moral teacher, paragraph one, could never, by definition, lie at this level. Certainly, a great moral teacher could never lie at such a magnitude to claim he was God when he knew he wasn't. To say he's a lunatic is a stretch because his teachings are so brilliant. His teachings are so good, the standard of the morality, the purity, the mercy is so good, a lunatic couldn't come up with it. That doesn't make any sense. Well, if he's not a liar or a lunatic, it's true then. Among the three logical possibilities, only a, of the three possible logical possibilities, Jesus being a great teacher is not one of them. He's a great teacher if he's God. He's a liar if he knows he's not God and teaches that he is. And he's a lunatic if he thinks he's God, but he isn't. He goes, that's it. It's not more complicated than that. Well, amen and amen. should team, go ahead and come on up. Lord, lunatic or liar. Let's just stand before the Lord if you want to stay seated if that's more comfortable. I want us to settle the issue in our spirit that in him is life. And there is no life, Zoe life, outside of him. So we're not going to go seek for it. I mean, I believe the majority of this room, the vast majority, if not everyone, we've already settled the issue, he is the truth about salvation. That there aren't other ways of salvation. There's not a superior way that Jesus missed. There might be a few struggling with that, but I I challenge you to go back and read the Word of God clearly and say, Lord, talk to me. Because those arguments are increasing rapidly in the the culture. And there's a great fall in the way that's in the making. But the point I'm really, really connected with is in him is life. This idea that in a minute, forever, the fullness of blessing, no pain because of him, because of the glorious nature of who this man is. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Father, here we are before you. We want to realign our heart with you. We want to realign our heart. You are the way you are the truth. You are the life. Thank you, Father. Show me more of each one of these. Show me more. You are the
1: life. I believe you. You are the way. You
0: are the truth. You are the truth. You are the life. You're not some of the truth. You are the truth. I believe you. you're not just a way you you're the way, the way of my eternal blessing it's you that because you I'm blessed you are the truth you are the
1: life I believe
0: you, you are the way thank you Lord you thank you that you're the way Thank you, you are the truth and the life. You're the only way to the Father. You, and only in you is there life, that you love me, thank you. The only way to you, Abba. You sent the beloved one to us. there's someone in this room you've never given your life to Jesus you you've never asked him to be the Lord and Savior of your life you could ask him right now and he'll say yes you can ask him to forgive you but he wants more he wants you to say I want you to take the leadership of my life you're worthy I don't know you you are the light. forgive me and take the leadership of my life you can ask him and he will answer you, you tonight you are the way you are the truth
1: you are the light and I believe I believe you are the way I believe you are the way I believe you, I believe you Jesus i believe you are the oh we
0: love you jesus, jesus. we believe every I word believe you say you are the way. I believe you what are a privilege the way. to have your word to I eat your word you to talk about your word to stand jesus. for your word in a culture that's hostile to you, you we love standing for you jesus For you stood for us so much. I believe you are
1: the way, Jesus. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And I believe you are
0: the way.
2: You are the
0: truth
1: You are the light and I believe you You
0: are the way the truth You are the truth. He said don't let your heart be troubled You are Don't light. let trouble dominate your heart believe, believe you. the things I'm telling you Jesus said You
1: are my home. You are my help.
2: Do
0: not let trouble dominate your heart.
1: You are my heaven. Believe what
0: I teach you, he said in John 14. You are my love. You
1: whisper to me when I am quiet. You sing me your songs of the way of life. You are my home. You are my heaven You are my help. You are my love You whisper to me When I am quiet You sing me your songs Of the way of life You are my home you are my heaven you are my help you are my love you whisper to me when I am quiet you sing me your songs of the way of life you are the
2: you are the truth. You are the light. And I believe you. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the light. And I believe for you you
0: are the who are you you are the, the angels sang in the heavens at your birth you all heaven rejoiced at your return you all heaven you. adores you jesus you are the way. we say we love you you are we love to love you jesus you are the ¡Sí! Beloved. you love are-